Welcome to the first ever episode three of our podcast, Fintech Insider. As always, we're coming to you live from the home of Fintech, that's London, obviously, looking down on the world from our wonderful vantage point up here in level 39. I'm David Breer, and I'm joined as always by Simon Taylor. And well, that's actually it for the regulars this week. Chris is off in Bangkok speaking at a conference, and Jason is off taking some well-deserved R&R with his family somewhere. We do have some excellent guests, though, so you'll just have to stick tight with me and Simon. Just before we get started, we've had some absolutely amazing responses from the first few episodes of Fintech Insider. We'd really like to thank everybody for their support, and hopefully you'll just keep listening. We've got a great show for you today. Joining us, we have Oscar Williams Groot, who is the fintech reporter from Business Insider. We also have a very blockchain-y lineup of guests this week, with first up, Simon talking to us about his trip to the House of Laws with Blythe Masters. Second up, we have Oliver Busman, the ex-CIO of UBS, coming in to talk to us about his views on the industry and the technologies that are really shaping it. Last up, we have Marcus Treacher, who is the Global Head of Strategic Accounts at Ripple, talking to us about what he's been up to and what it is that Ripple will be moving into next. Right, let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this week. There's been quite a lot of interesting things happening this week. One of them I I sort of felt pretty much all myself, I have to say, yesterday. So we had the BT fault that knocked out a huge amount of people's broadbands. And this seems to be affecting banks as well. So there's been a huge amount of people sort of reporting that they haven't been able to log on to internet banking. In fact, you know, literally this this afternoon when trying to uh, buy something in a a, uh, coffee house, then literally I had my card declined for this exact reason. So it seems interesting that this, you know, BT infrastructure, the week that they are actually being told that, um, you know, governments are putting pressure on them to invest more in their infrastructure have, uh, have this type of issue. Either of you guys affected by this one? Uh, thankfully not, although I am on Sky and I've had an unrelated internet issue. <laughs> so I feel I feel the pain of all the BT users, but uh, no, no, I've managed to avoid it so far. So I got it ever so slightly. Uh, David, you sent me a message, I think, when, when we were in the height of, of this, and you went, guys, is our 11fs.co.uk website down? And then I went, yeah, I think it is. And then everyone else went, no, it's fine for us. And then we kind of tried a few other websites. No, all the internet is down. And then I felt <laughs> David having this like panic, wait, all the internet is down now? What do I do? Maybe I'll have to go outside and stop buying technology. But it was a, it was a horrible thought. But it, it's interesting that the, the website you care about most is what you think is down when actually it's your ISP that's down. It's, it's an indictment on who we are. I, I thought it was, um, you know, the chatter that we had last week about going back to the 80s in the UK with the, um, you know, the conservative um, lady prime minister type thing, then, you know, slowly devolving from a technology perspective with the internet leaving us might have been the case. But but anyway, that was a, an interesting one. And hopefully BT get that sorted because, um, quite frankly, I need me some Netflix. So the next thing up, obviously, we talked about quite heavily Pokemon last week and saw quite a interesting article about over in Forbes.com. So Pokemon Go McDonald's partnership points to a promising business model. This was quite an interesting one. And I'm sort of seeing that the McDonald's and Pokemon co- uh, companies over in Japan have actually partnered up. So uh, McDonald's is actually going to be one of what they call battleground locations for for Pokemon over in Japan, which is quite amazing. So you know the the sort of monetary benefit that somebody like McDonald's can actually get by by hosting these things is pretty damn significant. So 
yeah, you know, interesting. We were talking about that last week and it's sort of coming to fruition. In fact, for those of you that listened to last week's show and, and the subscribers, you'll notice we actually talked about McDonald's and Pokemon last week. So <laughs> don't want to say we predicted it, but it seems to me like, you know, will a bank use this? What, what other organizations can use it? I mean, Oscar, do you have any thoughts? I don't see the benefit for a bank so much. I mean, there's a lot of chatter with the banks about, you know, how can we get people in branch? How can we make the branches exciting? But I think that sort of misses the point, really. The whole thing is that people are moving away from the branches for a reason. You know, you don't need to preserve that legacy. But certainly the whole augmented reality piece and how maybe other consumer-facing brands like shops or cafes can use it, definitely, I could see huge potential. But I think the key thing is that Pokemon Go is a hugely successful app and game, and that's going to be pretty hard to replicate. I think... You'll probably get a lot of people who will now try augmented reality games and realize, oh, actually, you know, it's not as easy as it looks. You need to create a really good game first before you can sell this to the brands. It's not just about having augmented reality. It's having a great IP in Mm. Pokemon, which everybody loved. And it's about having great game creators, which Nintendo have always been interesting. There's an interesting quote here from uh, John Hank, who is the Niantic CEO, who apparently own a a fair chunk of the, the... the property that is the the Pokemon Go app. Um, And what he was saying is actually that for businesses that rely on foot traffic, sponsorship for Pokemon will basically be almost like a a Google model. So rather than paying cost per click, they're going to be paying cost per visit. So, you know, it's quite an interesting thing. You know, it's not just about getting users and doing it, but, you know, they're really planning on the places that they partner up with, uh, you know, becoming real revenue streams for them. So, you know, that kind of, we've talked to in many guises about sort of digital physical type thing but this seems like a really interesting place to uh you know sort of bridge those gaps very much so i guess moving on and no doubt you know at some point uh we're going to come back to the um the pokemon piece no no doubt as that one sort of rumbles on but one of the other things that we talked about um last week which it's worth sort of uh, pointing out was about apple pay so we're seeing apple pay rolling out again so we're seeing them going into france and hong kong now I sort of find this one really interesting. It's, it sort of feels to me, you know, with all of the, I guess, slight sort of underwhelmment with, with what's going on with Apple Pay, it's strange that they keep sort of rolling it out into more and more countries without really sort of fundamentally shifting the, the proposition or making it better. But I'm guessing maybe those things will come. You know, it kind of feels like we're sort of a lot on um, trust here with these guys that at some point they're going to make this a lot better and uh, give us a real reason to be sort of using it. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, I've never actually used Apple Pay, but the only sort of interaction I've had with it is seeing people struggle to get on the tube. So, you know, tap their phone, tap again, Uh wait a second, tap again, and then finally they go through, which, of course, is a terrible advert for the service. And, you know, I've not seen any reason to try it out because of that. Maybe some people find that more convenient, but I've got an Oyster card that does, does me just fine. I find the in-app piece quite interesting uh, and there's potentially more use cases for that. So, you know, your card's already loaded on your phone. So if you're shopping on the web, you just, you know, pay with Apple Pay. But in terms of the real world stuff, yeah, I mean, I think it needs to get a lot better before a lot of people will really uh, embrace it. It feels a bit like the the plan is, like I say, sort of Trojan horsey. It's kind of... uh... Get it into as many countries as possible and start making you know a little bit of money in terms of the uh, the payments that are coming through and then you know unveil some sort of uh, next wave plan of actually what it could be you know I'm, 
I'm hoping that's the case, but I, uh, let, let's ask an Android user, Simon. <laughs> it, it seems very un-Apple, doesn't it, to have an experience that not everybody likes, but to keep pushing it out. It's, Apple would usually do the opposite. They'd be brutal and they'd kill it, or they'd, they'd kind of marginalize it in some way. But actually, this is something where they've got to do something that's out of their nature, which is build a network of transport operators and payments companies and you know people around the world to, to do something. And then what comes next, you're right, is an interesting question. Is it about giving people access to those services, or is it giving them a different experience once you've got access to those services, which which we just don't know yet. I wonder how much is led by, you know, Android Pay and Samsung Pay and these things being sort of pushed out. You know, are they sort of adopting new countries to ensure that they're not losing grounds on, on other mm. people rather than really sort of moving because they, you know, they feel they've got a product that will really, you know, offer something differentiated in the market? It strikes me all these things are keeping up with the Joneses a little bit, it, which is a strange place to see Google and Apple in. You know, it's something you'd expect of an older player in the market. But actually, because Samsung Pay and, and Google Pay and, and sorry, Android Pay and, and Apple Pay are out there, they're all competing. So they feel like they have to compete. So they compete more. But the question nobody's answered is why. And I think you get away with that as, as tech companies. You don't have to answer why. You figure that out later once you've got enough user adoption. The problem they've got is that users aren't adopting it and they're not enjoying it when they do. Will that change? The jury's out. But then I suppose an interesting point is that the fact that user adoption at this point really doesn't matter too much because their whole selling point to you know brands and banks is, look, you know we've got millions and millions, tens, hundreds of millions of iPhones out there. We can immediately get access to this. You know, put it on the phone, and then we will build the you know. So maybe the arms race is on the the banks, the brand side, rather than necessarily the users. So that's why they're rolling out to all these countries so they can be the first to partner with, you know, you know, BMP Paribus or whoever it is in each of these countries and get them over the Android deal. And then once they've got all the brands and the banks on side, they can go, okay, now we need to fix this product. <laughs> it does does feel like that, definitely. It's going to be, you know, really interesting to see how that one plays out, isn't it, mm. in terms of uh, next steps. But, uh, okay, we've got uh, something quite interesting on bankingtech.com, which I, I found a bit puzzling, if I'm honest with you. So... Oak North have come out as the first challenger bank to be using Facebook at work. And I know sort of in recent times we've seen, uh, you know, a few UK and a few European banks sort of making sort of rumblings about Facebook at work. You know, most notably uh, Simon McNamara over at RBS coming out and, um, you know, and saying RBS are going to be adopting it. But it sort of seems like a strange choice for a, uh, a challenger bank, in my opinion. You know, I know there are sort of almost like uh, the the worn path would be a you know slack which is free and uh, you know something like google for work so does this seem a bit of a strange selection process here i yeah i certainly think so i mean i'm just looking at the article here and it says uh that oak north hope that adopting facebook at work will help them achieve a 30 percent reduction in the number of internal emails which seems like a very strange priority for a, a startup bank i mean do, do internal emails cost you a lot i don't think so well, I don't think they cost you anything. I think that's the thing. But I, I think um, given the fact that Facebook at work has a cost to it and mm. something like Slack, which is free, doesn't. I know there's a there's a kind of an element around regulatory in terms of what you can do and obviously the data storage in terms of where we're going. So maybe Facebook at work have got over that hurdle. But, you know, I can kind of see Facebook at work for like big banks, you know, the the kind of um, idea that somebody like RBS would be using it as a kind of a Trojan for culture change within their organization. You know, you everybody knows how to use Facebook. Um, therefore, 
actually it's kind of a move away from some of the you know collaboration tools that don't really sort of foster collaboration so i can, I can, kind, of, yeah, <laughs> I can kind of get it as a you know an alternative to you know like office 365 or you know some of the um some of them sort of more legacy ones as you described but for a startup, it just sort of feel, it doesn't feel like a startup tool to me. It doesn't feel like what a startup would do, right? A startup would just pick up what's there and whatever's easiest. Mm. And and you know, you walk into any startup office and you'll see a, a, a line full of Macs and everybody using Gmail. You just will. <laughs> That's what everybody uses now. There's uh, there's a possibility that Facebook for work you know gave some good deal to these guys. But actually, is this a trend where we see the end of walking into a bank and seeing lines of ThinkPads all with Windows Seven on them? And and is that a trend that comes? I don't know. I, I can't say it soon, but there is probably an upgrade cycle coming from Microsoft soon where they'll start to depreciate their old versions of Office and what they'll depreciate them to is cloud-based. And that's going to drive a really interesting change in the marketplace. Mm. I think I think it's um I think it's gonna be a tough sell into big banks, you know, like even into RBS, the amount of people who can actually access the real Facebook mm-hmm. is like single digit percentage if in, you know, in the whole group type thing. So you know, it kind of feels like enabling a, a worse version of the version that you would want to be using than the, you know, just picking up the business version, if that makes sense. Which is daft, because like, yes, I can get rid of social media on somebody's laptop, but they've brought a smartphone in with them and it's got, <laughs> the smartphone's got a camera on it and it's also got like, it's got everything you need to get onto every social network in the world. It's yeah. Don't, don't ever point that out to IT security. They really, <laughs> really don't like it. So, uh, but uh, yeah, in, interesting one. We'll have to keep a, a kind of a bit of a tabs on what uh, Oak North do next in, uh, in in terms of that one. Moving on, Oscar, this is one of yours, actually. So Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel is doubling down in German fintech startup. That sounds quite interesting. Yeah, so it's it's a Hamburg-based startup called Deposit Solutions. They've been around since uh, 2011. And uh, Thiel has invested in January, so pretty recently, uh, 1 million euros. And uh, now both Thiel and FinLab, uh, a, a German investment company are both increasing their stakes as part of a, a 15 million euro round and deposit solutions basically it lets people it lets banks advertise the uh, savings rates of rival banks to their customers so say your uh, you know a competitor bank offers 5% savings account but you just have a 2% one you can say hey customer x why don't you you can access this 5% account but you don't have to set up a new bank account and then in the background basically the the capital that the bank offering the five percent rate needs is transferred from the two percent bank to the five percent one and then the five percent one makes good on all those interest payments yeah so it seems like quite a quite an interesting idea i mean there's obviously already a lot of that sort of interchange between of uh, yeah, yeah and sort of banks you know obviously fund each other all the time but this is this way of offering the interest rate to the customer is sort of taking that backroom transfers and giving the benefit to the customer which obviously is sort of the big theme within fintech is you know is there a way of making things better than the customers rather than just the big banks themselves and, and Tink seems to be really sort of investing pretty heavily in many things, doesn't he? I, I'm just sort of reading uh, reading through your article, so I, I didn't realise that he'd, he'd actually invested in uh, Number 26, Credit mm. Tech, and TransferWise as well. Interestingly, I, I didn't realise either from what I just read from your article, but he uh, apparently you funded Hulk Hogan's lawsuit <laughs> against the Gawker as well. Which yeah. Is, uh, Interesting one. So he's got many fingers. And <laughs> he wants yeah, to be yeah. a Hulkamaniac. Really? Yeah. Everybody yeah. loves a bit of the Hulk. 
yeah, no, I think yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting guy. I'm not sure. The 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 thing with Tio is uh, I'm I'm always uh, the 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 Gorka lawsuit. I think is very personal. He's got a bit of a grudge about Gorka, but with with things like um, deposit solutions, obviously he's got Valar Ventures, which is his his fund that he, he sort of personally bankrolls, and um, you, you sort of wonder. Obviously, I'm sure he signs off on a lot of these uh, investments, but. Is is it the product of his interest in this, or is it just investment managers he's hired who find these? They think they're the hot things, and then convince. So it's interesting to, you know, I don't know how personally interested he is in fintech, but certainly somebody at Valar Ventures is for sure. What I like about this is it's uh, innovating in the business model, and banks are involved in the innovation of a business model. Mm. So you know, will they effectively partner with Bank A and Bank B to to deliver against this? It's certainly an interesting idea, though. Mm. Next up, we've got uh, quite an interesting one over in Wired. Google's DeepMind trains AI to cut energy bills by 40%, which is quite staggering, really. You know, so actually, you know, this is Google really sort of turning a lot of the artificial intelligence work that they've been doing and all the research that they've been doing with DeepMind to, you know, save energy, which is quite an amazing one. You know, if you kind of think what that must physically be saving them purely in 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 cost is mm. quite staggering really so you know this type of application of machine learning feels like a you know a, a real different direction i think what's what i find most interesting about this story is the fact that deepmind has become such a sort of jewel in the google crown i mean it seems to be in the press all the time now and yet what they've essentially done here is recreate on a industrial scale what nest does and obviously nest is uh, such a seems like such a bad acquisition for Google. Everything we hear that coming out of them is that it's not going well and they're struggling to launch new products. So I wonder how much communication there has been between, you know, did did they get them in a room and say, hey, do you want to have a go at this? Or are they just working side by side? Was it just like, hey, we're doing something like that too. And and you guys did it for somebody's home? We've just done like a whole data center. Yeah, yeah, that must have been easy. (laughs) But uh, yeah, you know, I'm a big big fan of Nest. I I have to say, I have quite a few of their products in my house. Mm. Uh, The... Uh, carbon monoxide monitors and the thermostat as well and they work really really well but like I say it just seems to have stalled you know there, yeah. there doesn't seem to be a, a kind of a drum break, a drum beat of the progression of the the functionality does there in, in the way that there was when it kind of felt like they were independent yeah um, but yeah and I, I, I guess you know does this kind of pave way for a, a very different sort of selling point for DeepMind you know within mm-hmm. the banking context actually a you know a, a product that's you know, even with the move towards cloud technology, for an example, it isn't going to do away with all of the data centers that banks have initially. But being able to shave 40% off the, the, the bill for uh, running them from an electricity perspective seems like a, a good standpoint. Well, I'm, I'm willing to bet that Google's data centers were already multiple times more efficient than, than most banks. I mean, I've seen examples in my career going back many years now where a web server was going to cost you half a million. I'm willing to bet that's a fraction of a fraction. For, for, from Google's perspective, given given both the scale they've got, but given that that's their expertise, the the second point is that they seem to um, you know, this AI thing. Banks and the vendors, two banks, and the whole community around it seems a bit creeped out by Google. They seem to think that because Google makes money from data, they're going to make money from their data, and then there's going to be all kinds of compliance issues. And I sort of get that, but at the same time, you know, the fact that Google's willing to turn DeepMind in on itself is quite an interesting show of 
maybe confidence or transparency or sort of like, you know, we're willing to unleash our AI against ourselves. You guys should trust it. Because there was a story in BBC I read this morning about um, there are a couple of NHS foundation trusts looking at using DeepMind to really help with patient care. And it, you could see the person writing the article getting freaked <laughs> out just off the folder that's patient care, AI. Oh, it's got to be bad. It's got to be brother. Kill it. Stand on it. And I think we do have this natural fear towards using technology. So you know, Google's confidence and willingness to explore is, is, is interesting in this one. No, I agree. Moving on uh, with the next thing up, Oscar, is uh, another one of yours, actually, and quite uh, an interesting one given the sort of timing of everything. So we've got Santander's fintech VC firm has invested another hundred million. So, you know, these guys are sort of properly doubling down on, on fintech. Yeah, I mean, uh, so they've, they, they initially had a hundred million allocation uh, to spend, and I think they've spent just over half of that and are saving the rest for sort of follow on rounds in companies they invested in. And what's what's quite interesting is that the, what they're sort of now focusing on is rather than looking for necessarily new areas to invest in, they're now looking for new geographies. So that the initial fund focused uh, quite a bit on the US, the UK, that sort of market. And the new hundred million will mostly be spent in Latin America because obviously Santander has big presence in markets like sort of Brazil and Mexico. So I think what would be interesting to see is how, how much overlap there is between sort of businesses they invest in. Will they back a peer-to-peer lender in Mexico, maybe, or a payments company in Brazil, duplicating what they've got elsewhere rather than sort of encouraging those businesses to move overseas? Yeah. Yeah. And also, is this uh, an opportunity for them to start to take, uh, you know, their brand into kind of new markets as well in Latin America that they're not already in rather than just new products? Or is it primarily just aimed at those new products and markets already in? I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting one to watch for that reason. Some great quotes in there from uh, Mariano as well around um, sort of not buying this whole piece about uh, everybody moving off to uh, Berlin and Frankfurt. So uh, <laughs> I think we'll get um, Mariano on the show in a few weeks' time and, um, you know, get him to give a bit of a, a bit of a sort of flavor about what they're up to. I, and, uh, I like the actual quote is, I don't buy that this everybody's moving to Frankfurt. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like him. It, it sounds yeah. very much like yeah. Mariano. Well, I think he has a point. I mean, it's it's I, I, I'd certainly think we could see fewer businesses started up in London as a result of mainly the uncertainty rather than any actual real changes. But I th- it's a big ask to, you know, if you get all your staff or to move to a completely different city or hire an entirely new staff in a new hmm. city. Yeah, I don't think, I'd be very surprised if we see a significant number of startups, either in fintech or more generally tech, just up sticks and leave. Yeah, I think we we sort of discussed it a little bit last week and, and then a lot the week before. But I think the um, you know the idea that most of the noise that's sort of coming out about people moving mm. seems to be kind of actually being sort of led by the people who hoped that it would happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, I reached out to Asimo this week actually and and sort of asked them if the the sort of rumours were were true about them mm. leaving and uh, you know going establishing somewhere else, which they you know they said don't panic, we're not going anywhere. So um, <laughs> you know I, I kind of think most of the um, the kind of rumours of London's demise as the the sort of capital of fintech are you know hugely sort of exaggerated. But um, as, as actually probably the you know the next story sort of underlines a little bit really. You know we've got a huge US bank, so we've got um, Wells Fargo buying a three hundred million pounds London HQ. Oscar, this is one of yours again. Yeah, so they they they've bought a thirty three central. It's called uh, a big new development over by London Bridge, uh, and I think at the moment they have. 
say like 850 staff in London, but they're spread across multiple uh, offices. So uh, what they're going to do is consolidate them all into one new office. I think in 2018 they're moving in, something like that. Yeah, 2018. But, I mean, this, on the one hand, obviously, it's a good investment in London and a sort of sign that, uh, you know, things aren't going down the pan as, as much as people thought. But the, the sort of caveat to that is that Wells Fargo, although it's, um, it's the largest bank in the world by capitalization, it's not that global. And its London operations mainly serve American clients looking to do business in the UK rather than a sort of, you know, leapfrog position to wider Europe. So it may not necessarily be them saying, hey, look, we can still use this as a base for Europe. It seems like it's just them saying, we still have a lot of American clients who want to do business in the UK. And it's not, it doesn't look like they're going to be increasing headcount or anything. It's just a sort of consolidation of office space. But still, it's good to see money coming into a sort of a London development space, definitely. It's a, a beautiful looking building as well that they're going to have. So um, definitely I'll be um, looking to pay a visit to that one. At some point. <laughs> yeah, and it's right off the Strand. It's a great location and uh, good on them. They've got a good spot there by the looks of it. Indeed. I wouldn't mind crashing that. But it's a, it's a big glass building as well. <laughs> it lo- it kind of looks like an Apple store from the outside. Yeah, you know, it does, uh, doesn't it? You know, whoever picked that one out did uh, did a decent job. I wonder and- if the fall in Sterling had a, something to do with the timing as well. It suddenly became a bargain or if this transaction was in train anyway, because these big transactions are in train for six mm. to nine months at, at least, if not years, to, to try and get them done. And it's, it's interesting that the things that are landing now, how long were they in train before they even before they hit the news now. And yes, it happens to be post-Brexit, but they were made before Brexit was a thing. Yeah, I think that's probably a valid point for the, the Santander investment piece. Like, mm. You know, like you say as well, it, it kind of feels like that will have been, you know, in train, as you say, for, for quite some time, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. But, um, and, and I guess, um, you know, I guess time will tell in terms of actually what they do. Like you said, the initial 100 million, 50 million of that has been spent, hasn't it? So uh, we'll see where the next lot goes. But uh so next up in the news, we've got, uh, so central bank digital currencies could boost GDP, says Bank of England. This is one over at coindesk.com. Uh, Simon, what's yeah, your thoughts on this? So central bank issued digital currencies is something that my Twitter feed is convinced is utterly stupid. <laughs> and indeed, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article with a headline that said the central bank solution is to print bitcoins, both of which I think are, are horrendously wrong. But I think there, there have been a number of voices out there for some time arguing that um, the central bank should look at how it prints money and it should digitize that. This has been an argument that's been around for quite some time. Indeed, uh, the famed Dave Birch has often talked about the Bank of England doing a Bank of England peso after the M-Peso <laughs> project and, you know, and how would you make digital money. But I think um, both of those arguments, and, and there's a lot of uh, technical folks saying, well, why don't they just build one big central database of, of money? And I think that misses how fractional reserve banking actually works. So if commercial banks buy central bank money or hold central bank money, they actually lend that out three, four, five times. So commercial banks have taken one pound and turned it into five. That's what our economy is based on. So if that was sitting in a central bank database somewhere, then how, how would they know what the other banks have done with that one pound? So the real advantage to central banks is knowing for the first time how much money supply is in the world. So you might think that you've got one pound in your bank, but what you don't realize is that that your bank has lent that six or seven times, or is it eight times? And the central bank doesn't know. Indeed, the central bank is guessing. So everything the central bank does is very, very educated kind of guesswork. So to know the, the amount of money in supply would be hugely beneficial. And so 
what you'd need is something that could operate inside the ledgers of all of the individual commercial banks. And how do you do that? Well, you get everybody to use the central bank's infrastructure, which would be kind of very, very costly and very, very dangerous because you'd be consolidating all of that balance sheet risk. Or you have some sort of standard, which we've never effectively been able to do. Or you kind of go for something in the middle. And this is where um, shared ledgers kind of come in. So I think that's that becomes quite interesting. So the you know uh, the consensus that would manage the reconciliation and settlement could potentially have impact on things like uh, the uh, the amount of interchange paid uh, between organisations. So if you think about all the payment systems, a payment system even like Vocalink, but certainly like Visa and Mastercard uh, that the retail customers are using have an element of cost to pay for that big centralised infrastructure. If all of the banks in running the systems that they have to run anyway for their customers also have something in that system that syncs that up with the central bank and syncs that up with each other, then what do I need Visa for? Uh, maybe Visa provides some some rules and, and they provide some mandate, but can I reduce the cost? And I think that's a valid question for the for the Bank of England to, to ask. The, the second point is, if they can now quantify the amount of money in the market, can they have new policy options? So do they have policy options like reductions in real interest rates? Do they have policy options like reducing the amount of money in supply? Because money in supply, they've only ever printed more money. Um, so the, you, they get some really interesting things that, that I don't think have been in the mainstream media discourse. I don't think of, you know, uh, that have been missed by the Wall Street Journal and others. And I think have been missed by the, the Bitcoin community. So this one to me is, is very interesting. And, and what's important to point out here is that it is research. They're not saying they're going to do this. They just think... If it worked, and that's a big if, you'd have these benefits, and I, I frankly think they're right. Well, but isn't that fantastic, right? You know, we have a um, we have a bank that you know we have Bank of England who are actually researching things like this. You know, I think um, practicalities aside, and, and obviously there are elements to be sort of worked through in terms of actually, as you say, making this work within the the kind of constraints that we actually have. But mm. the fact that they are spending the time to even look at this, you know, it kind of underlines for me the. The reason why actually we're you know in the, the sort of leading position that we actually are, which is which is good. So I think they should be kind of applauded for you know engaging in these types of dialogues and actually moving it forward. And this probably ties into the the last story as well, actually, that we've got for for the week. So we've got another one over at CoinDesk, and and Simon, obviously, you were kind of first hand on this mm-hmm. one in terms of doing it. But we've got the UK legislators casting an eye over Bitcoin and blockchain uh, at the Parliament event. So this is. House of Lords. Tell us a bit about it, Simon, because you were you were one of the people speaking. Yeah, in a suit in the hottest uh, day of the year, in a room with no air conditioning, with eight lords oh, of the God. realm staring directly at you. There's <laughs> no pressure. And the great part was Blythe Masters joined via the phone, so it was just me sat there on the <laughs> lonesome, looking at these folks who had some some very good questions. And I, I was really impressed by the questions from the lords. They've certainly done their research, and I think what they're what they're concerned about is that a blockchain becomes a new sort of big brother state in which if all of our information is put on this one database, then what would that mean for hacking? Would that mean that actually all of my information is available to everybody? Which is a valid question. And of course, there are good solutions to be able to manage that. And we talked through some of those. So there were there were three main bits to, to the talk that I saw. Ben Broadbent, who's one of the chief policy advisors at the Bank of England, talked through their, their central bank digital currency research paper and some of the research they're doing and also the Mansion House speech where they're launching, the Bank of England is launching a, a fintech accelerator and they're also looking at 
opening central bank money to payment service providers, which again, I think is, is, is a very interesting idea that creates competition uh, w- with commercial banks. The second piece was they had PwC, Michael Mianelli from, uh, Professor Michael Mianelli from uh, Zion, I think you pronounce it. And they also had Dr. Catherine Mulligan from UCL talking about non-financial use cases. So this had everything from Internet of Things and blockchain. You know, so how can uh, understanding provenance across the supply chain really change how I finance that supply chain? And we, we got into the details of that. And I think they, they largely understood it. The subject around uh, GovCoin, this one was given a bit of a kicking, I think, because people thought that GovCoin's intent was to control how people spent money. When actually the real intent was very similar to my mind to what they're trying to do when the central bank is saying you know, they've got a lot of friction in the payment system. And when you're giving out £75 billion uh, of uh, welfare every year, that friction really starts to add up to an almighty cost. So they were just looking at their options as, as, as far as I can see. But again, you know, this is the right sort of scrutiny that an upper house sh- should be doing. And then lastly, it was um, Blythe Masters and myself talking through you know, what are the use cases for banks and, and you know, what are the realistic timeframes. And, and their questions really centered around, you know, where are we going to see this develop first? What are going to be the first use cases? What, uh, what should government be doing? Which I thought was an interesting question. And what should government not do? And one of the things that I suggested to them, which is that London has a tremendously vibrant blockchain ecosystem, as does the wider U- United Kingdom, that actually it's it, you know, post-Brexit, I think there's a need for it to have a light sh- shone on it. And I think there's an opportunity for government, the business of government. So everything from land registry to social welfare to NHS to really at least understand the subject and work with the interesting startups that are out there. And it was a huge shout out, and I think, um, to the to the guys in the London community who are doing amazing things. So I've talked, open to thoughts. I was going to do two <laughs> Well, no, I was just thinking there that it's, it's quite interesting. I think um, sometimes the, the, the word, you know, words like Bitcoin and blockchain can scare government, whereas, you know, if you term it digital government and just about, you know, updating digital services mm. for the 21st century, then they're all on board for that. Yeah. But the moment you mention sort of blockchain Bitcoin, then there's, I think there's something of the big brother state about it. that they, Yeah, they fear that it's just going to be some massive, scary, um, scary monster that's going to jump out and kill them. <laughs> Certainly that's what came out of um, my experience, that that was, that was the worry. And it, it's, it's a shame because I think uh, there's a real opportunity with blockchain. And there's a lot of folks out there that think anything that isn't Bitcoin is a scam, as we know. Mm. But actually, there's, an, there's a whole other community that believes it's the next big thing in enterprise technology. And I, I talk to a lot of folks who you know, really understand technology, but don't understand the boring business problems that banks have. And I think uh, this is something, a point that Blythe made and a point that I made, which is the problems that banks have aren't sexy and they're not obvious. So the, the, a lot of the problems really around cost uh, that banks have are how do you mutualize infrastructure? In most industries, you can just go straight into the cloud. In banking, you really can't because there's a lot of regulation on you that doesn't let you go into a cloud. And there's a lot of things you have to do with the central bank and reporting that are very, very bespoke bits and pieces. So just sticking that in a cloud and using DevOps isn't the answer. You need something else that manages reconciliation, that manages for risk, and that manages for workflow across organizations. And smart contracts and blockchain appear to be very well suited to that. So we'll see where this one develops. 
Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting and, and obviously a, a you know a great thing to have gone and done, Simon. So well done with uh, well done with that. Continuing, I guess the the blockchain uh, conversation and, and this uh, episode is increasingly sort of blockchainy, if that's even a word. Uh, we've got coming up now a uh, quick interview that we did earlier today with Oliver Busman, the ex CIO of UBS. Thank you for joining us up in uh, Level Thirty Nine. We really appreciate you uh, you coming and being here so early. Huge amounts happening in the market today. Uh, you know, we're seeing a, a lot of uh, almost a, a kind of a, a wave of people leaving banks to go and joining interesting firms. You know, we've seen people like Anthony from from Barclays leaving to go and start seemingly a, a fintech firm. Do you think this is a trend that will continue? I think definitely it is a trend to continue because you, you saw that in the other industries too. Uh, that other industries got disrupted from a digital uh, point of view uh, much earlier. And um, this generates a lot of opportunities, opportunities that you know, capital comes in, investment opportunities, skills are required, a combination of high tech and, and financial service background. And th- th- those kind of opportunities are very attractive for uh, players out of the financial service because the financial service industry is becoming uh, the next battleground. Uh, now, we know that last year, over 19 billion US dollars invested from a venture capital point of view into startups, and this will continue. If you look at the amount of investments for a specific topic, like the blockchain topic, very similar to what we saw in uh, 20 years ago from investment size in numbers of deals perspective. So there is an, an amount of, if you if you forecast that, uh, of changes coming through in industry, and if you like to be part of the change, that is very attractive for those people who like to be change agent and go out there and leverage their background and experience, bring it into that new venture and, and try to define the future state of the financial service industry. So that, that's, that's an attractive value proposition that um, you see a, a lot of executives are, are moving in. Very interesting. Oliver, you've worked at some interesting companies across technology and mm-hmm. banking. What would say you've kind of be your key lessons through that and, and take us on a brief tour of, of who some of those companies are and, and what you learned in that journey. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, for me, it was a fantastic journey, like 25 years in the business and, and it's almost like 50% high-tech with, with, with IBM, very good from engineering and, and financial service perspective as a foundation and then also SAP uh, in, a, in a high-tech environment, fast-moving, moving out of the ERP space, more in the cloud, mobile, big data perspective. And then I've been in, in the financial service industry in all sectors from the Deutsche Bank, private banking, Allianz Asset Management, Allianz Global uh, Asset Management to PNC, life insurance, and then with UBS, capital market, uh, wealth management, asset management, all sectors. And you know, looking at my role as, as a chief information officer, I have to say I'm, I'm, I've been through um, an, an development that you know previously I would say until – Coming back into high tech uh, with SAP, I was focusing on, you know, how can I uh, professionalize my, my my IT function? And it's always something you, you get measure. Is it is it efficient? Is are you reducing risk? Is it competitive? There are benchmarks out there, and that's always that you get you know get get uh, you do an assessment where you are and, and you define a target state and you try to optimize that. The second e- evolution then over time is spending more time on the business to understand. Uh, where the business is going and try to bridge that 
And that's that's already a challenge for a lot of chief investment, a chief information officer to find a method to figure out where the business like to be in the next few years, what kind of capabilities, business capability they need to build up to execute that, what is available on the IT side from a technical capability to support that, to understand where, where are the white spaces, where are the overlaps, where are complexity, and then translate into to a plan from IT perspective to get there. So a lot of folks are previously just doing, you know, what should I do from a project perspective for the next 12, year, 12 months and, 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 and expand the landscape. But that bridge from architecture, from a planning perspective, business and IT planning, financial plan, most of the cases that I've been through are not connected. And I, I focus on that the last, I would say, the last 10 years uh, going through Allianz, SAP, and then also UBS to bring that together because that, at the end, will generate value. The third topic is that 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 I discovered is especially with with, with um, SAP coming into SAP the dimension is the strategic dimension also to figure out what kind of disruption is out there technology wise and how to leverage that uh, bring this in house and see how can this be used for your product and service lifecycle and 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 generate a benefit for the business out of that that that's something that I would say. You know, with coming into the SAP environment, high-tech environment, that everybody with 60,000 employees was a, a CIO. Now they had a better understanding of what's going on. And, and so you had, to, you had to establish ways to understand, you know, what are the trends, uh, how you bring that into the organization, give the organization time and, 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 and resources to explore that, and then bring this to, into production. And then I did this very closely together with the SAP product development. So becoming a guinea pig in the mobility space, in memory, data, and, 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 and then also share those experiences, learnings, and limits um, also with the outside world through social media, blogs, be a thought leader, and then also in interaction with the customer. So it was, that was the first one that I realized I, the IT leader can be a very important should play an important role, and that that kind of way, how to embrace it, I, I uh, professionalize and, and put it on a much higher maturity um, level with UBS to manage that whole orchestration from where, what other themes out there from a disruption perspective, what is relevant from uh, from a business perspective to prioritize that, give the business a chance to do the ideation to see you know, what kind of ideas can be leverage uh, leveraging that new technology. Act in a, like a VC fund, give uh, funds and resources to the best ideas, give them access to labs, internal and external labs, like level 39, to validate those ideas, the hypothesis, and see if it's really coming through, and then put them in the normal product and, and service lifecycle and, and budgets to implement this for the production. That whole orchestration, ecosystem orchestration, management is today required on ongoing business to be successful, to be linked to a changing environment. It's very interesting that a lot of organizations do seem to struggle to get what's in the lab into live product. Mm. And I think what you've described there is an excellent process of getting things into being live products. And talk to, we talked um, before we started recording about some of the themes in mm. the marketplace. And there's, there's a number of themes, and we're going to talk a little bit about one of them in, in depth in a moment. But there's things like cloud and machine learning and others out there. You know, how, do you, how would you talk about those themes and, and how um, organizations can start to use them more? And then we'll, we'll zoom into possibly blockchain. No, I think, I think for, me, for me, it's important is general observation is uh, with those themes, you know, the new technology like on the mobility side, on the cloud side, on the robotics, artificial uh, intelligence, 
at the end, you try to automate, digitalize existing business models and existing processes. And I believe the, and I'm known for it, the, the, the real disruption is with the distributed ledger with the blockchain at the end, it will totally disrupt how we do business in the banking industry. Mm-hmm. Changing, so changing, changing at the end is what's is simplifying radically how you do transactions, who would be involved in the future. And I believe, like you just always say, Simon, is it will generate new products. New asset class is something that because that real time execution, real time accessibility of information uh, will drive new products be, uh, because there's a different need and demand for that, and and that's the exciting part that we that we we are, we are at the beginning of the fundamental change in the financial service industry that maybe will also disrupt the whole market structure, mm-hmm. you know? and structure that maybe we will have more uh, players that will provide platforms, the infrastructure for that, uh, folks that manage more the customer relationship and then product providers, for example. So the, the, the whole structure of the, of, of the financial service industry in the next few years, if this will come through, I think is, is going to major change. Huh? And that's the disruption that I can see is uh, because previously the last 10 years, I think is, is, Yes, you see the change from mobility point of view, how you access information. Now, those kind of technology are very helpful. But at the end, you still do the same, you know, um, business from retail banking perspective, how you, how you uh, buy and sell um, equity. You know, it's the same way how you, how I did this at the time at Deutsche Bank. Oh, yeah. No, it didn't. It didn't change so much. No, we and, digitized no. the paper process. Yeah, it's very paper. No, creating a digital process. It's a digital process. No? And and we know that through the smart contracts, you know, that you have one reference point in the in the future instead of everybody maintaining their reference point. This will be radically uh, from a will be simplified from that perspective. So that's the that's something that I I think. If you zoom out, I think everything gets gets you excited. No? Mm-hmm. Now, artificial intelligence, uh, robotics that you can uh, leverage uh, those kind of things to um, automate something that is fragmented and, and needs needs a lot of uh, work. But at the end, it's still at the end you need business process reengineering at the end to make uh, it really make any of it work. No, no, works, yeah. no, so then then you come into the same topic: is is there something else that you can do to? To simplify from the top, from a business model perspective and 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 operating model perspective, and that's the that's the that's these are the the, the critical changes that I can see. I was going to say from a, from an operating model perspective, you know, uh, there's huge amounts of things happening from a technology, but how much have you seen in terms of the the cultural shift within these organisations? Because clearly, you know, there's been the rise of DevOps, there's been the rise of Agile. You know, during the, that your your time working at those companies, you must have seen or you know, instigated real change in terms of actually how those processes actually work. And I, I think that's almost as big as the, the customer face. I think are. the biggest resistance is, uh, is now, especially after the financial crisis, coming back into the financial service industry, the amount of controls, risk requirements, security requirements is, you know, you can kill everything, new technology, if you have, you want to be, if you don't question those requirements, mm-hmm. because there's sometimes that you go the other extreme is that you know you you go for 150 percent interpretation of what's from a regulatory point of view is required, and that has a 
that has, you know, is the value, the benefit of new technology will be totally diminished from a user experience perspective. No? And you've got to question how much, when the regulation was written, how much did the people who wrote that regulation yeah. understand technology? Exactly, exactly. That's something that I also, I, I, I fully agree, is the learning curve also on the regulator side, not to what is the benefit in doing that? Right. If you listen to, you know, one of the biggest roadblocks for the, the fintech community is, um, you know, the cloud policies of the regulators. Mm-hmm. Now that you know how you maintain, how you can store, where you can store customer information, how etc. That everything has to be on premise in certain countries etc. In in our world, in our world, that most of the startups are in the cloud infrastructure as a service. And then if you look at the distributed ledger, that you don't know mm-hmm. at the end where the data in the public ledger the data is in which jurisdiction from, from that perspective. The only thing is, you know, that it should be secured, it should be encrypted, etc. And, and and those kind of discussions, I think what I learned is if if you don't challenge that, those benefits are not coming through. Is even more the opposite. Mm-hmm. No? So so you can make a, a mobile app so secure that nobody will use it. No? So that's the that's the that's the that's the the extreme. On the other side, sure, you have to make sure that there are certain security requirements are in place to to protect your own assets. But that that balancing in, in the today world with regulator every time if there is a blow up that uh, a blip, uh, that it becomes more tighter, etc. That 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 fine balance I think is is required. If not, we don't see those kind of changes. No? It's critical, isn't it? So Jason, who's not here today, told me a story uh, about one of the things they found in Mondo, which was, yeah. um, you know, pretty much every bank's mobile app has the passcode yeah. to, to get into the app. And this is, yeah. if you survey everybody, you know, if you survey your customers, they will tell you they want a highly secure app. So yeah. you'll put a passcode on it. Yeah. But actually, if you look at the user behavior, mm-hmm. they don't want the passcode. And they're, they're more than happy to use the app without it. And this is one of those things where, you know, if you ask people and regulators what they want, you'll actually design a faster horse. But actually, if you understand technology and you understand why the requirements are written, you can design a service that meets the needs of everybody and might surprise them by being better. Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the criticality and, and uh, of a transaction and size, essentially, you apply different biometrics, uh, services, etc. Make it more secure and other information just from an information sharing perspective is more more open. So I think there's a you can have a differentiating view on those uh, on how you provide information and, and make a transaction um, accessible. So what I'm saying is I think the the most of the startup have a different mindset how to embrace that. Mm-hmm. And now they're coming into the regulated world in industry like like the financial service industry and and. And they get challenged by the regulator, but I think the regulator are their jurisdiction like UK and Singapore, etc. That they believe they have to tackle that because at the end it, it defines the competitiveness, the competitive position of a country or location, trading location, and that attracts business. And that's something that 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 has there's a clear link between uh, regulation and business development at the end. So Oliver, you're very active on Twitter and social media, mm-hmm. a noted blogger. Your your blogs um, on LinkedIn mm-hmm. regularly hit over mm-hmm. ten thousand views. Mm-hmm. You've talked a lot about blockchain lately. Mm-hmm. How would you describe it for a business audience, and, and what excites you about it? Yeah, I know we've touched on it briefly prior, but sort of. No, no I think that's the, the difference is the, the, the for me the key characteristic is that uh, you can store information on the internet in a secure way that the involved parties have the keys to that information. 
and put information also in there, how you execute this information. And, and that significantly reduced complexity um, because today everybody man maintains this kind of information in their ledgers, in their databases. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge effort in the financial service industry to synchronize, reconcile the, the, the status quo of this information across multiple players. Mm -hmm. And and that that triggers a lot of error costs, reconciliation costs, etc., and and slow down the the whole business and increase a significant complexity. No? And and with the the blockchain at the end, you maintain one reference point that is accessible not only within your own company, also across outside the company, mm -hmm. and and make it make it so secure that only one that there's there's one valid copy of that out there, or let's say one information that is valid. And at the end, it drives a totally different business model. If, if five people have copies of the same answer and none of them agree with each other, yeah. the amount of errors in that are phenomenal. But actually having one copy is, is, is huge. It's, it's a huge topic and this drives a different uh, business model. And I'm a strong believer this is not only something that we leverage in, in our industry, in the Internet of Things, uh, you need that. The government, real estate, health, etc., it's a, it's, a, it's a totally new mechanism. How this now technically will be managed and mature, and that it all technology is maturing over time. Mm -hmm. I think it's, there's no question about that. But so we are moving out of our, from the company premises into yeah, the internet at the end. It becomes a value internet. And the, the fascinating topic for me is more, you know, in the last few months that I spent a lot of time with high-tech firms, private equity firms, startups, venture capital firms, is it's not only a topic in, a, in the fintech environment. Is I, I have to say I was blown away that a lot of high-tech players now ramping up their entire portfolio, product portfolio. The entire enterprise tech from hardware, software, services is now impacted by the, uh, by the blockchain. And uh, so the, the, the major players in the high-tech business now, like Microsoft and IBM, and Microsoft is very clear on that. If you see their blueprints, they have a clear understanding how this will evolve, in which area they play a role, what's the value proposition, etc. And then you listen to them and you realize they're very clear that what they saw in the 90s, uh, that inter the internet changed their entire business, the entire enterprise stack. There is a belief this also happening right now with the blockchain. Wow. That's huge. I, now, I, saw, I saw a presentation and then I saw that and across... Really, uh, big players, tech players, leaving that, and that's something that gives me the confidence that's that's not a niche play in in the financial service industry. It's something that will be reflected in the diff in the enterprise tech from hardware software services perspective. Wow. I, and you talked briefly there about kind of the tech is always evolving. And yeah. The tech is always changing. And, yeah. um, and we, the tech will continue to evolve. Yeah. What do you think needs, has been done that might have been scary um, in the past? And, and how would you calm nerves on that? And then the second question is, what do you think the tech needs to evolve towards to be, to be usable? Is it ready yet or does it need a little bit more, do you think? No, I think I think if first of all, you know what we see now in the financial service industry from the amount of investment, resources, capital going into as a player in the financial service industry, I would take this very seriously mm -hmm. because there's a belief, and you know this is a market, free market of of resources, etc. And if you see that investors like venture capital firms and private equity firms are 
putting significant amount of money into that. And so they're betting on that the whole industry will be disrupted. Mm -hmm. And there is a belief in the industry that it will impact the P&L of, of the banks in maybe only in the next five years or 10 years. I would be very cautious about that. Mm -hmm. Because we learned, you know, I've been through a lot of conferences also, um, and there's a lot of good data out there from the Singularity University in the Bay Area. They analyzed other industry. What is the tipping point that new technology is becoming mainstream? And there are studies out there. If a technology reached a 13 to 15% market share, you see um, a clear inflection point and it's an acceleration. So that means if you're not part of that learning curve early front, up front and mm -hmm build expertise and skills. And if that technology reaches that 13 to 15% market share, it becomes a threat to your existing business. Makes sense. So if there's very little downside to learning more, it probably yeah. costs very little to learn more. Yeah, yeah. If it doesn't end up panning out in the very, very short term, hey, you didn't spend you know, half, you didn't spend the, the earth in budget. But actually, if it does, and there's a real likelihood it could, then you're one of the ones that is well-placed to survive. So, 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 so what I'm also saying is the risk is right now, and I mentioned that at the beginning is that we try to leverage an existing technology to extend current services. Mm -hmm. that's because that's the comfort zone a lot of everybody's in there to see how this service could evolve if I use more, yeah, to digitalize that new technology, et cetera. But I think that the biggest threat is more is, is that business models will change dramatically. So that there is a split between maybe providers just providing, like in the retail business, just products. There will be maybe a platform that will organize the distribution. There will be partners that manage the client relationship and, and rely on product supplier, suppliers. And, and so, so the, the whole market structure can change. And, and I think spending time on those changes and reflect what does it mean for my business today mm -hmm. and maybe how this will uh, play out uh, from a technology perspective. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. And then if you see that, uh, like, for example, on the blockchain topic, and you, you, you're, you're, you're an expert in that, I don't see, I see discussion today more on how move existing, existing business, existing business on, on the blockchain. But I think the fascinating topic is, if I'm an investment in capital market, what kind of products can I develop? What's define define a blue ocean out there. What's the what's the white space? The white the space. That's the that's the critical part because because the existing one from a regulation risk compliance perspective is huge effort that everybody has to go through. And I think if you ask me in those kind of topics, the killer topic will be if something new comes up, yeah. a new product from a capital market perspective that leverage the, the real-time information, execution capability, et cetera, that is easier to get approval and buy-in instead of, you know, getting the buy-in of multiple players on changing business workflows, uh, yeah. standards, et cetera. Inside lots of different yeah, courses. Different, and it's a really hard part. And and the trigger point, from my perspective, will be a killer app that is, is going into new businesses. Mm -hmm. And creating a new them. asset class, maybe. Or, yeah, yeah creating a new asset class. Exactly. As you always says, you say that, uh, you're saying that in, in conferences, I believe that too, a new asset class at the end that is only possible because the technology will provide that. Mm -hmm. 
and doesn't have that complexity today that you have to migrate or move in in definition. And I think this is a real challenge in the market because a lot of people who look at the blockchain subject haven't seen capital markets or the inside of the bank systems and realized how vertically integrated banks are and exchanges and CCPs mm. and custodians. Like every actor in the capital market space is, is vertically integrated. And then there's this web of point-to-point integration. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's really no horizontal. Whereas if you had an asset class that existed on a horizontal mm. that, that could trade across a shared ledger of some sort, then you've got something kind of really powerful. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, uh, I think, senior management um, really struggling mm-hmm. with the uh, with the technology still. One of the key questions I hear a lot is, is who are the winners and losers going to be? Do you, do you have a view on, on who the winners <laughs> and losers will be? It's, it's too early to say. I think uh, right now everybody has a fair chance to drive this to be in the driver's seat. And I can only speak coming from also from a high-tech perspective. My experience is the winner of the future is somebody who is very actively involved to understand what are the, the capabilities of a new technology. Mm-hmm. And so what I gain. So, so give an example. I, I've been through this enterprise mobility at really early, early stage, 2010, with the iPad coming out. And the iPad was at the beginning identified as a consumer product. Yeah. The colleagues at SAP realized it's a, also an enterprise product. And the, the first topic was how to make this consumer product secure and available in an enterprise environment. And within a few weeks, we, uh, we did this at SAP. And 10,000 people within the first few months had already access to that. And if you, play, if you can play with that, if you build that expertise, how this can be used, that drives imagination, ideas, how to reflect that into your product. So if you don't play it with, you don't understand the, 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 the possibilities to do that. So what I'm saying is, if you do this early stage and give the work environment a chance to experience that, then the translation into business is much easier than if you just do this on paper and, and, and hope that as a second mover, you still can do that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that don't want to get their hands dirty and want to pay something yeah, else. Yeah, and, and there's something that, that, that on the on the blockchain, I think it's the same like also on the mobility topic in general is, is if you don't have that imagination, you know, how simple is that to implement apps going forward? And the topic is not at the end to define your distributed ledger. It is more how you model new products on the ledger that expertise is that imagination from a business perspective to see, you know, how you define products and how you then mirror that on the ledger. That's the challenge for a bank going forward. It's not define how the ledger really should be technically be out there. There are, there are enough firms and, and foundations and, and consensus out there, but that, that capability to, to abstract and, and think about that. That's a differentiation could be success like they're going for. Absolutely. So, Oliver, um, last question for mm-hmm. you. That One of the things that, that you and I mentioned briefly is that um, prior to the interview is that the story in, in capital markets especially is about how do I meet compliance and I can't do anything discretionary and I've just got to mm-hmm. cut costs at the moment. Do we ever get to a revenue story? And, and is, are there technologies out there that can help us get to a revenue story? Because it feels to me that like there's, there's a lot of uh, kind of slopey shoulders and people very kind of 
lost in the banking space at the moment is is, is keeping an eye on technology and having a, a process for how to deliver new technology and get it to end product r- critical to, to kind of turning that turning that oil tanker. Yeah, I think I think I think the the, the new technologies are pretty much on the the efficiency plate. Right? If you look at at the distributed ledger, is pretty much all the studies are pointing to in the post-trade environment to 15 to 20 billion savings. Now, Swift Institute is saying that Morgan Stanley, Goldman, etc. They're 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 coming almost to the same range, bottom up or top down, no? mm-hmm. and sometimes very bottom up, very detailed on that. What I see more and more is I saw an Oliver Wyman study or Bain study last day saying also there could be uh, 150 million revenues at risk. So, so the revenue piece is exactly what we discussed is new products coming up that could be attractive. So far, yeah. So, so right now we're talking about pretty much a cost story, Mm -hmm. efficiency story. And I believe there is also a revenue story out there that, um, that, that I think we have to bring more up. I completely agree. Yeah. Oliver, if there's anything I didn't ask you um, and you want to mention, please do let us know. If not, then by all means, please let our listeners know how they can find you and how they can find out more. No, I think the best way, and, and this is also important in, in the financial service industry, is high tech is you know described in the last few years with openness, open source, you team up, you share information, you have communities. It's a win-win. Mm-hmm. And you still protect your certain topics, no? your IP, et cetera. No? There's still competition out there, but there's a different way how to get to a desired outcome. So that requires a transparency that I'm um, you know, also with UBS as the first bank at level 39. You know, you're transparent, you communicate your aspiration, you share that with the community, and the community can come also to you as a push and pull mm-hmm. at the end. And make yourself accessible. That's the whole principle that I also I believe over the last few years that make myself available over social media is critical as an executive and as a thought leader too. So I'm reachable over LinkedIn, I, Twitter. Is uh, those are the channels that I'm always accessible and and available for feedback. And that's the way also I believe that it should is part of my communication skill set. No? So people should Google Oliver Busman if they want to find out more. Yeah, it's easy. Oliver, OliverBusman.com is my website. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter is um, OBusman. So it's, it's, it's easy to find me. And uh, it's always a, a way to reach out to me. Fantastic. Oliver, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you very much again for Oliver for making the time to come and speak to us at Fintech Insider. Now, last up, we have Marcus Treacher. This is a pre-recorded interview that Chris Skinner did before he trundled off to Bangkok, obviously. So over to you guys. Marcus Treacher, you recently joined Ripple, having been with HSBC and on the board of Swift. How are you finding things different on the other side? Well, in some ways, the, uh, the problems that we're looking to solve are the same. So, you know, the su- subject matter, the patient is the same, if you like. The, um, the tools and the weaponry and um, the medicine we have to hand is very different. So I'm learning an awful lot about thinking in different ways around how technology is applied to the challenge of um, you know, safe, reliable transaction uh, delivery. And I'm also getting, a, you know, a great exposure to how the whole Silicon Valley fintech world ticks, thinks, and approaches problems. It's actually quite different to how traditional organizations are have been looking at, um, at challenges in uh, banking. What's the big differences you see? I think it's taking a very non 
you know, financial institution uh, approach to a, a common problem. So it's looking at the problem from a very different way, whether it's engineering or whether it's looking at payments in the same way that you look at the internet. All well, the thinking at Ripple was derived by looking at how the internet works, which is inter and intra-network, universal and immediate, and say, okay, well, how would financial services tick if some of that uh, thinking is applied to how value is moved around the world? So it's about looking at very looking at the same topic, but taking a very different model to that topic. Mm. And you know, in doing so, you often find you know, angles and ideas that you'd never find if you're looking at it from the traditional you know, established banking world. So it's almost like the Silicon Valley people look at the technology and how to apply it to transactions and value exchange, for example, rather than looking at transactions and working out how to apply technology. So it's, it's looking at it from the other way around. Exactly, exactly. And there are pros and cons. I think the um, looking at it from the, the tech-centric perspective, you know, it, it creates a bigger gap because there's, there's a long way to go between the insight and the idea and the actual delivery. But it means you can take a very creative view that leads to a very different way of thinking about and also a different way of solving a problem. So with Ripple, they're very much in that space. They've looked at this in a very different way. And um, you know, we now have some great propositions that do a really good job of cross-border value transfer in a way that is very difficult to achieve using the traditional, you know, look at a system, see how we can improve it method. And I think that, um, you know, working in the, I guess, in the fintech or the Silicon Valley world, as a banker, as a technology banking professional, it gives me another angle, another way I can look at these problems. So what I can do is help to bring some very creative thinking to, you know, some very big challenges. And hopefully we can mold and adapt and come up with some very strong payment um, capabilities. And Ripple, as I understand it, is really just a counterparty exchange system at the base infrastructure of the financial system. Is that right? I think ultimately they all are. So ultimately, you know, the financial network revolves around the counterparty um, relationship. Now, where Ripple is different is that it changes that counterparty exchange from a postal service, which is really how messaging works today cross-border, to a conversation. So it's a very subtle shift, but it means that transactions that are agreed between counterparties are what we call atomic. So either they completely and irrevocably work or they never get started. And that very tiny shift in in how you can make a value exchange happen, whether it's money, whether it's settlement, whether it's trade, um, goods and uh, equipment, has a massive positive impact on how you can manage value either for you know, individual payments or for you know, for commerce or for banking worldwide. So it removes, if when implemented properly and thoroughly, it would remove the chase and the um, inquiry overhead that normally goes with cross-border payments, the classic penny claims on receipts. Well, if there's no ambiguity in the payment, that, that shouldn't happen. The ability to trigger uh, release of goods and, goods and uh, value settlement on the back of a, um, a reliable committed transaction, and also the ability to make an end-to-end payment that may be crossing several jurisdictions and several banks happen atomically in the moment and um, with a pricing that is um, you know, clear and upfront and committed to. So is that a direct replacement for the SWIFT messaging for the MT100s, 500s? 
it's it's a different model. So Swift is a is a great governance um, body, and it, it it controls and manages three message types, three three main ones. So there's Fin, Fileact, and uh, an Interact. And I just think I like to think it's in terms of maybe a fourth, you know, transfer of value method. Let's say RippleAct. So if Swift had Fin, Fileact, Interact, RippleAct, you'd say you know corporate um, treasurer, this is important. I'm going to pay via Ripple i.e. the interledger model that we use for cross-border immediate atomic settlement. There's no reason that, that, that Swift is, what's the word, a like-for-like alternative. They're different animals. Swift is a governance animal, and it rides on top of a number of technologies. We just believe we are working on the, the next generation of, of cross-border enablement, which actually we think Swift would uh, benefit by adopting. And when we see other uh, companies like R3 and Digital Asset Holdings started to gain consortia activity. I mean, Ripple were out of, out of the gate as one of the first, I think, that caught the bank's attention, yeah. but they haven't got that consortia behind them, have they? No, we, we, we're different. So we've concentrated on getting hard capability up and running. So a great example is the Santander press release a few weeks ago where um, they've launched internally for their, um, their employees to start with a payment capability mobile app fronted to pay into the US, any account in the US, any bank, uh, the Eurozone, any account in the Eurozone, 20 countries, any bank with uh, Dayplus One and also with uh, upfront pricing. So we've been concentrating, we're working with several other banks right now with very similar initiatives. So we're concentrating on getting real capability out, which tends to take you into the, um, the project and the implementation world versus the um, the innovation world. So one thing we're looking to do as a company is also kind of re-engage in the innovation space, having got the base technology, you know, in a really good place now, building that out well, spending more time looking at more value that we can derive from, for, for example, um, uh, credit control and against cyber, and also, you know, linking into maybe trade solutions. So, you know, we, we happily work with R3 and uh, we see um, R3 digital holdings as, you know, other players in a very exciting space. And uh, we think there's a great synergy between what, what we're doing, which is very much you know, leading edge looking beyond pure blockchain and um, the um, strategizing that happens within R3 and uh, digital holdings. I guess the final question, Marcus, is um, you know, looking at blockchain developments, it's still very, very early days. And there's been the Dow attack on the um, Eritrean uh, Ether units has been obviously a lot of Bitcoin compromises. We're not secure yet, so how is Ripple playing with that? But Ripple has um, deep security <laughs> built into the the protocol. So the whole what we call the interledger protocol and also the Ripple Connect ledger have the concept of uh, a compromise network built into the the fabric of the, the protocol. So it means that the exchange of um, of value is much more tightly controlled than otherwise be be the case. Now, Ripple is very much a, a foundation technology. So in the you, your classic stack model, it exists at the very bottom of the stack. So it means that very, very powerful anti-cyber, anti-money laundering, you know, sanction controlling, etc. capabilities can be more easily established on the back of the, uh, the Ripple base than would otherwise be the case. Marcus, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. 
And that brings our third show to a close. As always, you can get in touch with us on fintechinsider at 11fs.co.uk. You can also find us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. I'd like to thank again our guests. Thank you very much to Oliver, Marcus, and also to Oscar Williams Groot. I'd highly recommend going and reading Oscar's news on an almost daily basis at the moment over on Business Insider. On our next podcast, we have a real treat. We have Dave Birch from Consult Hyperion. And also joining us is Izzy Kaminska from FT Alphaville. I'm really looking forward to that one. So from Level 39, thank you for listening to Fintech Insider. Fintech Insider.